good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International Studio, and you're hearing us over EWTN Radio, so thank you for joining us today. This program is uh, unapologetically a continuation of our Journey Home program on Monday nights, in which uh, this particular Journey Home episode, which just aired, was the beginning of our 15th year of the Journey Home programs. So I suppose if I interviewed 40 or more converts to the Catholic Church each year times 15, that's a mess of converts and reverts to the church. Uh, so it's uh, I've considered it a great privilege to be able to do this for these 15 years, and I hope to continue doing that as long as the Lord is bringing folk home to the church and, and EWTN will put up with me. But our guest today is Dr. Ben Alexander, and uh, Dr. Alexander is a professor of English at Franciscan University. He's a former Episcopalian. Ben, welcome to the program. Thank you, Marcus. Good to be here. It's great to have you here. And what we try and do on the Deep in Scripture program is on Monday night you were able to share your your journey into the church, although you actually gave the full version back in, night, in 2000 when you were on the journey home. Right. Reminded us a little bit of it Monday night. Um, and... Uh, but Monday night, one of the things that we talked a lot about was, um, you know, your love for literature as mine. Although I'm, uh, you know, I'm, uh, for me, talking about literature is like a baby trying to teach about nuclear energy. You know, you're much more. Uh, that's your life, and I, I really appreciate your your insight in that. But particularly, we looked at some great Catholic writers right. that that many in our audience have probably not only not read, but may not even be aware of, right? I mean, and sadly, is, wouldn't you say that's true amongst men, like many today? And these are great American writers. Well, uh, put it this way, they may they may be aware of uh, of these writers. I mean, we were discussing Monday night primarily Flannery O'Connor, who, who now is really kind of an institutionalized canonical American author. The problem is that many Catholics, uh, because of misteaching or a cafeteria approach to her writings or, uh, as we talked about Monday night, reading one uh, violent story out of context, uh, particularly those in the church, uh, don't know how to approach her. Yeah. Uh, or they don't know why she's good. Um, and, and this is unfortunate. Uh, as I was saying the other, other night, you know, she has a number of audiences. Uh, she's... Uh, well embraced by people who have no real religious inclinations at all. They they like her for other reasons. Her her sense of humor, her local uh, stories, uh, her political views. They like it. They like it for those reasons. Uh, she even has a, quite a bit of a feminist following. Uh, feminist writers like her. So uh, 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 th- there's a number of audiences she reaches. It's just what happens among the Catholics is that sometimes, as I said, they. They don't understand why she is now preeminent in American literature. Often when we think about Catholic writers, we generally are, jump the pond and end up in England. And we're thinking about all the English writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Even into the 20th century when we're thinking about Evelyn Waugh and, and um, um, what's his name? Power and the Glory. Graham Greene. Graham Greene, you know. I mean, so, I mean, who are the American writers? And you're talking about two of the really greatest of our writers of the 20th century that often need to be better recognized, at least understood properly. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, uh, I think uh, they're changing the, to use a foot model analogy, they're changing the goalposts, the canonical goalposts of American literature. And uh, particularly O'Connor is kind of, I think, on the cutting edge. Walker Percy certainly is, is, uh, is not to be uh, – uh, he's, he's a very powerful figure in his own right. But these, these uh, figures are, are changing the face. I've been teaching for, well, I hate to say, a number of years, but I've seen <laughs> the canonical uh, goalposts change with the impact of these writers. Uh, and I think – uh, you know, um, the people like Evelyn Waugh and uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins right. are extremely safe uh, figures of belles lettres in the, in the Catholic tradition. 
but I think uh, these two writers, in a way, uh, uh, go further uh, in, in their uh, achievements. And exactly what they've achieved is, is the jury's still out, which is, which is good news. Yeah. Well, often when we're thinking about a Christian writer or a Catholic Christian writer, immediately the, what comes to your mind is it's going to be a religious story or an apologetic for the faith. Or it's going to be a, a typically uh, nuanced story where a person was in the gutter, I was lost, and then they were found. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the writers we're talking about are not so much following that grid of understanding. They're really talking about a worldview that does understand good and evil, uh, redemption, mm-hmm. particularly redemption. Right. Well, I mean, Percy and O'Connor are, uh, they're not writing what I call pietistic literature. They're not, particularly Percy, uh, he, he's, not, he's, not, he's not interested in, in preaching to the choir of, uh, of, of religious Catholics who are very observant. He's interested in, in, in his novels. In fact, a lot of his novels are about bad Catholics. Uh, he's interested in their, as you mentioned, was it reversion Catholics? Revert Catholics. He's interested in their rediscovering their faith, and he's also interested in his uh, in his novels in reaching uh, uh, you know uh, somebody working on Wall Street who's extremely secular, let's say the uh, secular businessman, and he's he's trying to reach them so that the literature of Catholic uplift um, of of Catholic piety that's been done. It's been done repeatedly, mm-hmm. and it occupies a certain niche. Uh, but that's not what Percy and O'Connor are about. They're, they're interested in uh, achieving a certain uh, canonical status based on the fact that they produce a great uh, technically um, technically proficient artwork, works of fiction, with a profound Catholic revelation in the text itself. So, so, so the the literature of Pietism, you know, uh, for example, uh, uh, Flannery O'Connor found that very boring. You know, uh, she would say in her own illuminable style, "But nobody's killed." Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, because she, in a sense, well, she was just being typically Flannery there. Yeah, <laughs> but she she uh, she she wanted uh, great stories. You know, the. Um topic for, of course, a deep in scripture program is scripture. Did either of them, and this is what brings us into this after our discussion Monday night, uh, to what extent was what, did the authors, though, not writing pietistic literature yet, was scripture an influence to both of them because what is also uniquely, uh, a, a uniquely binding of the two, they're both of the Southern tradition. Mm-hmm which is very much within the Protestant, Southern Protestant environment, mm-hmm. as with some of the other uh, Southern authors of their, of their time period. Right. Right. Well, particularly O'Connor. I mean, uh, she is, uh, uh, I was listening, uh, actually coming up to this new audio tape of her, The Violent Bear It Away, and she, uh, one of the audiences that she is particularly um, adroit in, in reaching is uh, those audiences that like to hear a southern dialect. And one of the things that she really admired, for example, was the rhetoric of uh, Protestant uh, fundamentalist preachers. Yep. Uh, and she thought that preaching was alive. And she often said it was much more alive than, uh, you know, uh, passive or. Uh, uh, academic sermons that you hear heard in the Catholic Church in the mid fifties, and for example, um, you know I can just read a bit of the uh, preacher in her sto- famous story, uh, oh, the, yeah. the River. Give uh, the audience just a little bit. Well, this is a story. Uh, this is a story about a uh, about unless you become as little children, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. And the little boy in this story. So is, she's basing really this story around that scripture. I think so. Yes. This is a story about childlike faith. And this young man in the story, uh, Harry Ashfield, he starts out in the story, his name is Harry Ashfield. 
uh, he's, he's, he comes from a very, very deprived family. And one of the things that uh, Flannery writes about is uh, she doesn't write about the aristocratic South. She writes about the deprived South, the poor, uh, and the deprived. And this young man is a de- very deprived uh, person uh, coming from an alcoholic uh, background of his parents. And he's taken to a fundamentalist uh, baptism uh, by the river. And uh, this is a deer in the headlight story. He has never heard such language as this. And this is the preacher Beverly Summers preaching. He says, I read in Mark about an unclean man. I read in Luke about a blind man. I read in John about a dead man. Oh, you people here, the same blood that makes this river red, make that leper clean, made that blind man stare, made the dead man leap. You people with trouble, he cried, lay in that river of blood, lay it in that river of pain, and watch it move away toward the kingdom of Christ. (laughs) And um, that's O'Connor at her best, where she had this ear for fundamentalist rhetoric preaching that was really believed and that she admired and that she, as a Catholic, found a way to put in her stories. Uh, and it, 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 there's a certain vividness to them, a certain drama in, in this language that she admired. And she was able to weave it into a story like The River. One thing you and I were talking about before the program is, well, Often we hear the statement that Catholics don't know their Bibles. But I do think that Flannery O'Connor is a good example of what is actually true, and that is that Catholics who are faithful Catholics from the time they were children, who are not just faithful in, in doing the things of Catholicism, but really live their faith and know their faith and are regular, their life is fed with Scripture every single day. They may not always know the chapter and verse, but they know it. And would you say to a certain extent that the writing that Flannery did was partially coming out of this lifelong reservoir of what she had learned in her Catholic faith and very much of what was Scripture? Because everything you've just referred to in her stories was a writing out, an interpretation, a fleshing out of a scriptural story. Well, you know, when, while she was uh, able, she was very sick most of her life with lupus, but she tried to go to daily mass. Uh, it became increasingly uh, difficult, but if you, she heard a lot of scripture there. Oh, yeah. And uh, she, the, the thing about her is she, she really thought about scripture. Uh, she made it uh, a title of one of her uh, books, one of her novels that she spent eight years writing, was taken from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the violent bear it away, one of the most um, difficult scripture passages right. from the Lord's mouth. Yeah. Uh, so, she, in fact, I would say that's one of the most profound exegetical uh, works ever done on that passage uh, because she prefaces the violent bear it away with the words of Jesus in, in which he says um, – and for you, those of you listening, this is the text that we're going to look at for this portion of the program. Uh, Matthew eleven twelve, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. And uh, that's exercised scripture scholars for, you know, eons, centuries. And Flannery comes along and writes uh, a novel called The Violent Bear It Away, in which she, uh, the epigram to that is what I just read. And she dedicates this novel, very interesting, to her beloved father, who also died of lupus. Edward, Edward Francis O'Connor is who this novel is written for. Now, uh, she gets the cadences of the scripture uh, in this startling uh, introduction, uh, probably one of the great pages in American literature, in which she talks about this young man, Francis Marion Tarwater, who lives in the backwoods of uh, a southern state, very rural, called Powderhead. And he's being prepared to be a prophet by his great uncle, uh, Francis Tarwater. Uh, And this is probably, how should I say, one of the greatest (laughs) paragraphs of homeschooling ever written. And this is how the young boy was trained by his great uncle. When would she have written this? What 1960. Time? Okay, all right. 
Uh, well, this was when it was published. Okay. Um, All right. And the second paragraph begins, the old man had been Tarwater's great uncle, or said he was, and they had always lived together so far as the child knew. His uncle had said he was 70 years of age at the time he had rescued and undertaken to bring him up. He was 84 when he died. His uncle had taught him figures, reading, writing, and history, hmm. beginning with Adam, expelled from the garden, and going on down through the presidents to Herbert Hoover, and on in speculation toward the second coming and the day of judgment. <laughs> now, what is that? That is, you know, just sort of, it's almost like journalistic prose. You say, what kind of schooling was this? This is revelation history. Adam expelled from the garden down through the American presidents to the day of judgment. So what she's done here is brilliantly, if you want to call it magical realism, some people would, but she has condensed in several sentences this incredible view of revelation. And uh, part of what's happening in this story is uh, this great uncle who has provided this homeschool education for this young man has says, I don't want you to go uh, to an institutional school uh, because you're not going to get what I'm going to teach you, uh, you know, this kind of revelation. So it's a story about a young man who has uh, an extremely radical uh, vocational call to be a prophet, and his uncle is training him, who is one of these um, – well, he's not a card-carrying Catholic. He's a biblical Christian. Uh, who believes some of these things in the Bible are literally true and are given to us as authentic revelation, and he is trying to pass it down to his great-nephew, Francis Marion. And just to clarify what you just said, it isn't that Catholics don't believe that what's in Scripture is literally true, but sometimes when you don't have the, the guided teaching of sacred tradition and the magisterium, that you can take some passages to be literally true that weren't intended to be literally true and take them off in pretty wild directions, which Flannery demonstrates in many of her stories. Right. I mean, she does have people that uh, are, are in, in, in just about all cases, the biblical literalists, for example, look pretty, uh, pretty ridiculous. She, yeah. She's a master of satire. Uh, and she, you'll, you'll see in her letters uh, and in her essays that she gave and delivered on the craft of writing, uh, that she, uh, she was very indebted to St. Augustine's allegorical reading of Scripture, the fourfold reading of Scripture mm-hmm. uh, that has its, uh, well, it's really a very familiar in Scripture reading in, in the Catholic tradition, the, the allegorical reading of levels yeah. of, of the text. What's wonderful about O'Connor is she, she says, okay, I want to put this to work these, this allegorical reading of scripture in uh, in fiction, uh, so that um, uh, she is getting away from you know the fact ridden scriptural tradition of someone like Ernest Hemingway, who believed that um, no sentence in English ought to be over seven words, and it should be <laughs> just factual. You know, and if you read. Hemingway, he's deceptively simple. What O'Connor wanted to do is she wanted to uh, add mystery and um, uh, re- uh, mystery and amplitude to the English language, like that passage I just read yeah. uh, from uh, the Violent Bear Away. So, so that uh, a lot of her stories, you'll see deliberate passages of mysticism interlaced with these factual sentences, you know, oh, this, this is a factual report, and then all of a sudden you get the story about uh, he's been educated in, in uh, the American presidents on down to the second coming. So, <laughs> so she'll sneak that in. And uh, at the end of a story like uh, one of her favorite stories, um, which has an unfortunate title called The Artificial Nigger, but it's about a bigot who yeah. converts. And um, at the end of that story, she said, I want to make this story as biblical and as emphatic as I can. And so that bigot who converts at the end 
says he was now ready to under something to the fact he was now ready to undertake suffering and he could now conceive of the sin of Adam in his own heart. And so it's a guy who identifies with the sin patterns of Adam uh, in Georgia in 1950, whenever the story is written, the mid 50s, yeah. when it was set. So, so it's it's um, it's an amazing um, mysticism that she that that you will find in paragraph after paragraph after paragraph in her fiction. This, let's go look at the passage that you've chosen, Ben, that's the, the background to the story that she wrote, which was about this young man. And you were thinking of reading starting with verse 7. Right. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and do that, because you're reading from the version of the Scripture that Flannery would have known from a child. You're reading from the Dewey Rames which goes back, this actually translation goes back to Chaloner's revision of it in the late 1700s, originally written in 1605, when the Douay Rames, I think it was 1605, it was before the King James, which is the, but anyways, this is the translation she would have been familiar yeah, with. Let me set these verses up a little bit. This is um, our Lord who is, uh, you know, he's a little bit uh, upset uh, with his reception, but uh, is, is his principles got more and more controversial in the kingdom he was preaching, and uh, in this passage I'm about to read, uh, people are complaining that he's from Nazareth and he really doesn't look like who he should be if he's the <laughs> son of God. You know, where are your robes? Where you know, where are your credentials? And so the Lord says. But what, what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft, soft garments? Behold, they are clothed in soft garments. Behold, they that are clothed in soft garments are in the houses of kings. But what went you out to see? A prophet? Yea, I tell you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my angel before thy face, who shall prepare the way before thee. Amen, I say to you, there hath been not risen among them that are born of the woman a greater than John the Baptist. Yet he that is lesser in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. So just, just to reiterate again, the context here is that um, John the Baptist, who's in prison, hears about the deeds of Jesus and sends his messengers to find out, okay, who are you? And right. which is interesting because we know that before that, John was the one that said, there's the Lamb of God, go following him. Right. But when he's in prison, in the midst of his struggles, he's struggling with doubt right, and, and questions. So he's asking Christ. All right. So uh, I think what's, uh, what, what, uh, where this scripture really spoke to me and uh, I had no idea what the Lord meant when he said here in the kingdom uh, from the days of John the Baptist and now the kingdom of heaven suffered violent yeah. and the violent bear it away. What does that mean? And uh, I struggled. I'm, I'm not terribly sure I know exactly what it means now, and I wouldn't presume to say that I do, but uh, this novel by Flannery has really helped me. And um uh, what he, what what Flannery says is, and w w this is why this passage is a, is a sort of a gateway to her fiction, um, is she wants us to be violent with ourselves, in terms of that is to say, the kingdom of heaven is not won by tepid uh, responses, hmm. by tepid attitudes, uh, by uh, compromising positions. It's one by people who are violent in their decisions, and she means by that radical action. Now, I'm not saying that you have to go out and do something radical or maybe you're called to, to, to go to prison or something, but she's trying to force the believer out of his comfort zone. All right, we're going to pause there, Ben, because I, I think this is a interesting passage. Until the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and men of violence take it by force. As you said, how do we interpret that in the context, especially of our wider faith? We'll come back to that. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. It's your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by Dr. Ben Alexander. You're hearing us on EWTN, 
your global Catholic radio network. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. Hi, this is Jerry Usher reminding you to listen to Vocation Boom Radio Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern exclusively on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Each week I bring you dynamic interviews with bishops, priests, vocation directors, even seminarians and those who support them, all in an effort to assist the Holy Spirit in what is truly a vocation boom around the world. That's Vocation Boom Radio Saturdays at 5 p.m. Eastern only on EWTN Radio. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Our guest today is Dr. Benjamin Alexander, former Episcopalian. He's now an English professor at Franciscan University. We're we're looking at uh, Scripture, but we're looking at it in a way through the eyes of, of the great Catholic writer Flannery O'Connor and how Scripture influenced her own life and then her writing. And we're particularly looking at the Scripture from which uh, one of her stories came, uh, Matthew 11, verse 12. Uh, in fact, Ben, why don't you read it again from your version? I've got the RSV, but I think it is important to hear it from the Dewey Rames, which is uh, the one that she would have. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. Now, there's an awful lot of uh, health and wealth gospel teachers around, and you hear them on the radio and television that want to tell you that if you really believe in Jesus, you shouldn't suffer. Uh, and I think they were around in her day, and I'm wondering what they would have done with a verse like this. But <laughs> Well, you know, a couple of things. She admired Billy Graham, uh, yep. who was uh, at, at the peak of his uh, career when uh, she was writing in the mid-'50s. But uh, you have to see that uh, O'Connor was a, a woman who had a death sentence uh, all of her life. Her time was limited. She was diagnosed with lupus uh, uh, in the late 1940s. She almost died then. Uh, and she was... As you mentioned earlier, her father had died. Her father had died of it. And so her time was extremely limited. And so um, she was wanted to talk about the power of redemptive suffering, and it was something that was extremely uh, prevalent in her own life. And one of the things you will find... Nowhere can I find in her letters any exhibition of self-pity or why has this happened to me. She's making fun of herself when she says, you know, uh, I've got uh, two two new aluminum legs or uh, I kind of look like a, a, you know, a strange animal when I go make these talks and I have to uh, uh, go up to the um, uh, microphone. And she was on crutches a lot of the time. She was in and out of the hospital a lot. And um, she learned to see this disease, this dread disease, as a providential grace of God. Hmm. And she said in one of her letters, um, this this disease that I have uh, has taught me more about God's grace than a long trip to Europe. Uh, so some people 
say that uh, Flannery O'Connor uh, puts too much of an accent on suffering, but I think uh, particularly with th- this day of the prosperity gospel uh, or the progressive entrepreneurial uh, materialistic gospel, you know, uh, that, that you are sanctioned by material uh, well-being. O'Connor uh, was a person who, who didn't believe in that. She believed that God may reveal his, his ways through deprivation and calamity. And she wanted people to prepare for that. And that's one of the things that happens in her fiction is that a lot of comfortable middle-class people are, all of a sudden find themselves uh, in, a, in a very profound religious conflict on the side of the road, in the pasture, uh, all kinds of places where uh, they find themselves have to, having to make choices that are extremely dramatic uh, and life-altering that they put off forever <laughs> because they've been comfortable. And what O'Connor does is she wants to force everybody out of their comfort zone. Uh, and she often does this by making people come to uh, come to meet someone like the misfit, you know, who, in that famous story, Good Man is Hard to Find. The misfit, she says, is kind of St. Paul before his conversion hmm. because he can quote scripture as he does to the grandmother on the side of the road, you know. That story, which, I, you know, I, it's been a number of years since I read it, but I remember what it reminded me of is, I mean, the last thing that that woman thought at the beginning of the day when she casually decided they were going to go for a drive and didn't she take them off in a side direction? Yeah, she got confused about where they were going. Got, so they go off in the wrong direction. And at the end of the story, she's killed right. by the misfit. Right. But it, it kind of reminded me of life that you know, we never know. Uh, you know, like even when you think about it in the context of Flannery Connor's own life understanding, she had a short time to live. She knew it. Right. And rather than give up, she sought to uh, write about the need for redemptive suffering in, in these lives of these people from the context of suffering, which she experienced every day. But the morning we get up and we start at the beginning of the day, we have no idea what's going to come by the end of that day. We don't. But one of the messages, I think, of, of, her, of her stories is uh, it, um, don't put off the crucial decisions like – this woman, the grandmother, and a yeah. good man is hard to find, really had no real dramatic, profound decisions except what hat I'm going to wear, what dress I'm going to wear. If I have an accident, people will know that I was a lady. That's what she says. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she says. She's never really had any 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 dramatic, uh, life-altering decisions. And finally, she's forced to make one. And we re- really find out who she is. She's a Marian figure who forgives the killer of her family. And she reaches out and forgives the killer, much like Jesus did on the cross, yeah, you, know, yeah. uh, uh, you know, to the uh, penitent thief. Um, and she's rejected. But O'Connor is saying in her stories, don't wait until you're on the other side of a gun uh, held by a criminal to make some sort of decision about your salvation. And uh, because she was living on the edge all of her life. Yeah. And so she thought in apocalyptic terms. She thought of, of, and to her, uh, uh, death was, as one evangelist told me about her who read her, says, well, death was just a change of address to her. You know, but she thought about the next world constantly. And I'm not saying that we all need to think in those apocalyptic terms, but neither do we need to be so insulated by the routine uh, comforts yeah. of life, which we're all susceptible to, and I'm, I'm, I'm the leading <laughs> candidate here. Uh, O'Connor is saying, you know, you, you need to think about the, the real ultimate issues. And if you look, for example, I just... I actually said a prayer when I was at her house uh, two or three weeks ago, which is now on the Historic Register, and everyone should go there. It's a beautiful— The one in Savannah? Or the one, the, well, Savannah, and this one in Georgia, in Milledgeville. Okay. okay. But if you look in the room where she wrote, I mean, it is modest and austere beyond description. I mean, there's an <laughs> iron bed. 
right? And there's a, there's a black typewriter and a wooden <laughs> desk and a wooden chair. And over in the corner is a little Victrola, you know, where she, she was she was given this, I think, by the nuns who were her friends and, and some records. But um, it's, you know, it, I guess what's so incredible about that writing yeah. scene is the austerity and the simplicity of it. There's not a lot of stuff in there. There's no iPod. There's no, <laughs> there's no computer. There's just that old, old typewriter. And this is where she exercised her craft four hours a day, you know. And uh, it, it's extremely, you would never confuse her house with Tara Plantation and Gone with the Wind, for example. <laughs> this was a working dairy farm. So, uh, and it's, it's a very, very modest farmhouse. It seems to me then that, to, again, with the context of Scripture, that uh, Flannery O'Connor is an example of someone who took very seriously the words of our Lord when he's, he says, you never know the day or the hour, but watch and be ready. She's, this idea of this apocalyptic understanding of her life. Uh, you were saying whether we shouldn't live that way or not. I think I could almost say everyone that could possibly be hearing this broadcast, we should all take it a little more seriously. Right, exactly. We really should because most of us are on the other end and flippantly. And that story you mentioned is is an awake up call to our need to take the scriptures seriously about heaven and hell and and sin and the result of all of that. Well, you know, the, the fundamental thing about that story is uh, is the whole discussion at the end, leading to the grandmother's demise, is who was Jesus? You know, <laughs> and uh, that's what the misfit says, you know, if I'd have really known who Jesus was, I wouldn't be like I was now. <laughs> he said, Jesus thrown everything off balance and he shouldn't have done it. <laughs> and he he is, uh, she says he's a frustrated prophet. And so the grandmother says, uh, one of the most devastating faithless lines, says, well, Maybe he didn't raise the dead. And the misfit says, Lady, there never was anybody that give an undertaker a tip. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so it keeps funneling, uh, keeps focusing on who Jesus is, who Jesus is. The important thing is they these two people at the end finally see each other as human beings at enormous sacrifice. She finally makes the Christ-like gesture of forgiveness, which is completely out of character. Hmm. You know, she's just he's just murdered uh, three people of her family, including children. And she reaches out and says, you're one of my children. You're one of my babies. And it's just act of acceptance. Hmm. And he, he rejects it. Uh, but at the end, and I, I think this is where the story could have used, I don't know, I, I wouldn't want to revise O'Connor, but uh, at the end, uh, he's he's got his glasses out and he's rubbing them. And there's something about a new insight that he has. Now, this is a very subtle uh, thing that I think she intended. And uh, she says that story is about a prophet. who The scales begin to fall off his eyes. But most people are, of course, aware of the drama of that death at the end. But it is um, a woman who overcomes herself. and uh, uh, But she is forced into this apocalyptic scene. But that story is about who, you know, and, and this is one of her insistent themes. Who is Jesus? Who is this guy? The misfit uh, has in no way accepted who he is, but he's aware of his claims. Hmm. And he says, there's only two things you can do in life. You can follow Jesus, or you can burn down somebody's house, or steal somebody's tire off a car. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's very fundamental to him. Because he's coming at this uh, not through the propriety of the middle class. He is a serial killer from escaped from the penitentiary. So he's, he's on a different yeah. 
wavelength, and he's on an apocalyptic wavelength. Does Flannery O'Connor, in the portrayal of her characters, is she um, um, touching at the the conscience that's in every person when he is speaking out of what he knows down deep to be true, though he hasn't accepted it in his life? Yeah, that's what she means about, you see, uh, the misfit has not been properly violent. Because if he were violent, he wouldn't be disbelieving. What she means by spiritual violence is you accept on faith the teachings of Christ. This is an act of faith. He says, Jesus thrown everything off balance and he shouldn't have done it. Okay. <laughs> And if, if if he did what he said he did, I wouldn't be like I am now. Okay, this this is the voice of doubt. Okay, and where does that leave you? It leaves you as a serial killer in the penitentiary. Somebody who is violent, according to O'Connor, spiritual violence is someone who radically accepts the teaching of Christ. And if you are called, you may be, what, a prophet, you may you may suffer for Christ. You may be, for example, they're going to dedicate in a couple of days the Martin Luther King Memorial. Yeah. You, you know, you may be called to that kind of public witness in behalf of human dignity. Or you may be called to be a good father in your home church. Or you may be called to be a good teacher, to be violent with yourself as a teacher or as an evangelist. That is to say, you really prepare your work. I'm even thinking today in our day and age to be a witness for our Lord and his church is going to take violent act, not violent in terms of hurting people, right. but a brave against a culture that wants to redefine marriage, redefine family, to take a stand for what is true. You'll be called a bigot right. in our culture or uh, not an intolerant person because yeah. you have the audacity to say that there is something that's true and there is something that's false. Right. Why don't we take, we need to take one more break there, Ben. We'll come back for some some final thoughts about this passage and, and, and maybe, again, how good literature like Flannery O'Connor's actually is partially an exegetical expression of this different layers of Scripture itself. All right. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Our guest today is Dr. Benjamin Alexander. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by Dr. Benjamin Alexander. Matthew eleven twelve, and the violent bear it away. What do we take from that, Ben, today? What do you think as we, what, what, what would Flannery have been wanting? We've been talking about this, but maybe summarize for us today. Here we are. She's been gone 50 years, right? 1964. Yeah, so just about. Just about 50 years. And the world's changed a lot since her days of the typewriter, yeah. uh, probably in ways she would never have imagined, and even some of our moral ethical issues that she held so dear. Um, the violence, take it away. What should we take away from our past? Well, I think, I, I think uh, what she's saying is um, uh, she, the passage and the way she understood it is that a believer has to be violently uh, has to exercise their own form of spiritual violence, which doesn't necessarily mean medieval forms of uh, right. uh, of self denial, unless you are you know feel dramatically called to it, and your spiritual director says, "Yeah, I think that's a good idea." If you're you know go, go get a hair shirt, hair shirt, but it means things like um, uh, increasing your tithe to the poor, uh, 
Um, you know, O'Connor once said uh, she was talking about, I believe, Gerard Manley Hopkins. She makes this point. Hopkins makes the point. She says, you really have not experienced charity until you suffer by giving up something you like uh, and that is very dear to you in order to help someone else. That there's some real pain of deprivation because you give somebody your last several dollars and you go without a meal, let's say. Um, so that's what we mean by spiritual violence. And it's a very difficult standard. Uh, and it begins in the domestic church. It begins in our relationships with others, uh, the kinds of uh, petty quarrels or issues that we get in with friends or uh, things like that where where we have to – we're more inclined not to be violent with ourselves, not to be charitable. I mean, to practice charity to someone you don't like, for example, mm. that that's a very tough thing to do. Uh, how, for example, uh, we've, we've got uh, 9-11 coming up. Uh, yeah. h- how do you practice a certain sort of uh, spiritual violence? And what I mean by that, the exercise of charity towards people who have attacked the United States. Uh, I guess we're coming up on the 10-year memorial. Right. Th- those kinds of things are... Are, are very hard for believers to yeah. to, to, uh, to 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 practice charity and, and issues it like that. Reminds me of the other story of when Jesus was confronted by a rich young man. So he was confronted by somebody who had everything he needed, and out of the midst of that, he says, "Jesus, what must I do to to get to heaven, to have eternal life?" And Jesus says. Knowing the man says, well, obey the commandments. And he says, I've done it all. And then Jesus says, essentially he says, well, the violent need to take it away. Because what he says is, i got something else for you to do. Go. Sell it all. Right. Give it to the poor. Right. Follow me. Right. I mean, that's kind of the background. That's, that's real. That's what Flannery's talking about. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, but he, he doesn't, I mean, there's a... The Lord also is speaking, uh, you know, he's talking about, as I said, suffering to give up your riches, your comforts, that kind of thing. Uh, That's a very, very uh, hard standard in the America that we live in, you know, and where many people uh, are, you know, conditioned to materialism and creature comforts. And uh, O'Connor is is talking about a different uh, lifestyle. Was... O'Connor's, as you mentioned, her room where she wrote and the almost Cistercian simplicity of it, Mm -hmm. uh, when you think about it, it wasn't just that computers hadn't been invented yet because one could argue, well, the typewriter was the top technology of her day. But in reality, I'm wondering is in her letters and such, does she describe herself as choosing a more simplistic lifestyle as opposed to just being poor because she was poor. Had she chosen that as almost like uh, because she remained single to the day she died? Uh, I don't think – was she consecrated? No. No. Uh, and uh, well, that's another story. She had uh, you know, several or at least one uh, friend who was interested in her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think to answer your question um, – she, her schedule dictated a life of simplicity. Like like when she was at the University of uh, Iowa, uh, she had a very austere environment, uh, you know, with lots of books and apparently one light coming down from the ceiling, one of those long <laughs> cord lights. Uh-huh. And that's, what, that's how she lived. And uh, so I think the, the discipline led to simplicity. And uh, you know it's it's an, it's it's amazing because she wrote these incredible stories and then she has this voluminous correspondence, so it's 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 amazing that she had the time that she did. Sometimes you know that old story about the frog in the pot. You know that you you don't the frog you can cook the frog in the pot by slowly heating the water, and uh, the frog doesn't notice it. To a certain extent, all of us are blind to the influences that culture might have on us if we've been in that culture all our life. Right. And I'm wondering is if, if, Kat, if 
Flannery's Catholic upbringing, the soup of her Catholicism that she had all her life, is what led to her simplicity, helped her accept that simplicity, and also led then fed the message that she wanted to give in her writing. Well, I think it was all part of a part of the uh, craft of writing. Uh, she she found she she went, for example when she was at Iowa, she she went to mass. Uh, she said as long as I can, you know that was a big issue to get to daily mass, and it was all part of the discipline, so that Catholicism, her practice of Catholicism, and the discipline of writing were all kind of tied together. Well, something you also mentioned Monday night was her commitment to sacramental grace. Absolutely. Uh, the sacraments to her were were life giving, and she wrote this time and again to friends, particularly those who had left the church for more fashionable lifestyles. Because I remember from her writings, there was one particular woman for years she wrote to to help her draw near to the church. I don't know if she ever actually came in at the end. Well, that's a very tragic story. That's yeah. Betty Hester, yeah. who became a Catholic, then quit the Catholic Church, and then committed suicide in 1998. Uh, wow! Yeah, it was a very very sad story. Yeah, but her letters have just been given at Emory University uh, between Flannery O'Connor and Betty Hester. Some of the most incredible letters you can find in American literature. Was that because the woman uh, was disappointed in what she found, or was it? Was it? Was it uh, I mean, it's a hard thing to, to bring out here, but I, I think the point was there that that Flannery was really committed to her her Catholic upbringing. She was, to reach her, out. She was her sponsor. Uh, she just became a skeptic, and then uh, Betty Hester lived a extremely difficult domestic life in Atlanta. And uh, things just, uh, with, as often as the case, just overwhelmed her in the end. And uh, O'Connor said, please stay in the church with the, with, the, with the problems that you're facing. But she finally just uh, went another route. Yeah, well. God rest her soul. Whenever we see a tragic situation like that, it really reminds us, but for the grace of God, go I. Right. Everyone. Well, Dr. Ben, thanks. Thank you, Marcus. It's great being here and seeing you again. It's good to be with you and for you to share your insight and, and encourage us all to to uh, maybe dip into Doc, to Flannery O'Connor. And, of course, we talked about Walker Percy on Monday night. So thank you thank very you. much, thank Ben. You. Thank you all for joining us on this program. Uh, it may not have seemed as deep of a Bible study, but it really was. It was helping you see that a great Catholic writer like uh, Flannery O'Connor, as well as a good English professor like... Dr. Alexander were fed by the scriptures and then their teaching comes out of the reservoir of their love for scripture and their love for Christ and his church and you see that in the writing especially in Flannery you see the different layers the beauty of the teaching of our Lord and his church so thank you for joining us on this program God bless see you next week